It's Tuesday, October 17th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know what we don't need more of in the House of Representatives? Signs the Republican caucus has come undone. Yeah, we're still getting them. Jim Jordan, all shirt sleeves and spittle flex speed talk, did get 200 votes to be Speaker of the House. But that means 17 Republicans voted against them with some big names among that group, including Ken Buck, one of the 17 anti-McCarthyites. The New York Times describes Jordan this way, quote, He was once a right-wing rebel on the fringe of his party who was described as a legislative terrorist by a former Republican speaker. His ascent is the clearest indicator yet of how far House Republicans have moved to the right and shows the strength of Mr. Trump's grip on the party. So the correct way to rewrite this, acknowledging he's no longer on the fringe of the party, would be, he is currently the right-wing rebel at the core of his party, who is described as a legislative terrorist by former Republican speaker. That, by the way, would be Boehner. I suppose we should now say that not a terrorist, but he's entitled to the right of resistance. And to remind you of the last part of that New York Times statement, his ascent is the clearest indicator. Yes, another sign, an indicator of how far House Republicans have moved to the right. Another indicator of how far they've moved to the right is Jim Jordan coming close to being named Speaker. A small faction of Republicans deposed their last Speaker. That is another indicator, a sign, a finger to the wind, a tea leaf to pick up on. It's not subtext, it's text. And don't take it all from me. Here's a little point counterpoint. Let's quote two members of the House of Representatives. Here's the case against Jim Jordan from a person who is never going to vote for Jim Jordan, the Democratic caucus chair, I mean third in charge, Representative Pete Aguilar. A vote today to make the architect of a nationwide abortion ban a vocal election denier, and an insurrection insider to the Speaker of this House would be a terrible message to the country and our allies. That is true. Now, Kevin McCarthy was an election denier, but before being wooed by Trump and reminded that, no, Kevin, you don't have a spine, you have a tube of lemon jello where a spine should go, He did, well, vote against certifying the election, but he also thought the January 6th insurrection was a bad thing. I mean, we have his voice on a call where he's talking to other members of the House caucus saying that he's trying to get Trump to step down. Jim Jordan was never like that. Anyway, that's the case against Jim Jordan. Here's the case for him, Elise Stefanik, in her nominating speech. Our friend and colleague Jim Jordan is a patriot. He is an America first warrior who wins the toughest of fights, going after corruption and delivering accountability at the highest levels of government on behalf of we, the people. Jim is the voice of the American people who have felt voiceless for far too long. Whether as judiciary chair, conservative leader, or representative for his constituents in West Central Ohio, Whether on the wrestling mat or in the committee room, Jim Jordan is strategic, scrappy, tough, and principled. And the evocation of the wrestling mats, a period in Jim Jordan's life with just glory, not a hint of shame, scandal, or cowardice. There are more votes to come. Jordan wasn't that close, although, again, 200 yes votes is pretty close for a guy who was once on bottom, now on top, and I suppose hoping for the reversal, the takedown, and to pin the forces of chaos to the mat before blame and opprobrium gets pinned on him. On the show today, 
who's really trying to help the innocent citizens of Gaza. But first, Joe Nocera and Bethany McLean are out with a new book that attempts to be, and I think gets there, a definitive book on COVID. The Big Fail, What the Pandemic Revealed About Who America Protects and Who It Leaves Behind. Talks about mistakes. Talks about mistakes in science, in school closings, in lockdowns. Jonas Sarah and Bethany McLean up next. So I've been waiting for the definitive pandemic book, and I do think it's too early to actually issue one. Not that the reporting can't be done, but people aren't ready for it, and here's why. The emotions are still raw. People are still angry at decisions that were poorly made. And the people who made those decisions are asking us to still trust them as our leaders or to elect them. And therefore, we don't have the proper distance. I also thought that no one would be brave or wise enough or have the credibility enough to take this on. Well, on that point, I was wrong. A new book called The Big Fail by Jonas Sarah and Bethany McLean Subtitle, What the Pandemic Revealed About Who America Protects and Who It Leaves Behind, does just that. It, I'm not going to say name names, but it very clearly articulates the mistakes that were made, and they are not all of the ilk that everyone who was on the side against science was wrong, because the side against science was, in fact, oftentimes science, scientific, and the side citing science oftentimes got it wrong. I just think these two authors who have the stature and status to bring a lot of credibility to the project did an excellent job. It opened my eyes. At times, I couldn't believe they were reporting as reporters do, the plain facts uh, without fear or favor, as we say. And I hope this book is an eye-opener for people who, um, you know, are on all different sides of the issue. Jonas, Sarah, Bethany, McLean, join me now. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having us. So I do like the conception of who it left behind and to it, who it protected. But going in, and Bethany, maybe you could start, and maybe you could start just by talking about how you do books like this, what sort of preconceptions do you have or do you try to guard against? Because we all lived through it. So going in, how do you think of the whole idea of preconceptions? Well, I think this book has gone through a lot of iterations because I think Joe and I are really open to wherever our reporting leads. That said, I was pretty outspoken um, to my own detriment at the start of the pandemic about the ways in which um, our policies were exacerbating inequality. And I just didn't understand the self-righteousness about lockdowns when it was very clearly those most at risk in our society who were being forced to still shoulder all, all the risk and then some. It was the most underprivileged children who were denied an education. It was, quote, essential workers who were forced to go to work and deliver products to those of us, and I will include myself in that, in the Zoom class who were able to sit at home and have our Amazon deliveries and our food service deliveries, without which we all probably, and, and keep our jobs, without which we all probably wouldn't have tolerated lockdowns. So I think I think we started to think about that, that issue really early on. And then as the pandemic unfolded, it just continued the ways in which the feds, perhaps necessary, 
to some degree, but easy money policies really aided big business um, and the ways in which supply chain issues crushed small small business, um, the ways in which entrepreneurs, small business people, restaurants in particular, um, were left to just bear the brunt of this without with, without a lot of help. And so we took that as part of the core of, of the book. What do you mean to your detriment? Well, I mean that when we first started with lockdowns, I was pretty... I was pretty outspoken on Twitter about the importance of getting kids back in school, the fact that it was very, very clear that the people most at risk were were the elderly. Most of the deaths were happening in nursing homes, that we needed a strategy to protect people in nursing homes um, more. And I I, I was shocked. I had people I knew say, I didn't know you voted for Trump. Oh, wait, wait, what, 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 what do you mean? Why is my response to how we should handle the pandemic, whether right or wrong, but why does this say anything about my political affiliation? The two have nothing to do with each other. And I was shocked by the waves of, by the waves of disapproval, worse than disapproval that, 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 that came my way. And this easy and, in my view, absolutely insanely stupid correlation between what your views on how to handle a pandemic and your political affiliation were. And obviously, Obviously, that's continued in spades in a way that is still shocking to me. We don't argue, for instance, that the way you should treat cancer has anything to do with your political views. Right. But then again, I mean, I I suppose there's a political valence to everything, but it was so new. It was so raw. There was so much we didn't know. But I'll quote from an early part of the book. Looking back now, one of 2020's enduring mysteries is why Fauci was such an early and unyielding supporter of lockdowns. He was 79 when the pandemic arrived in U.S. shores. He had spent his entire career at the NIH. He had more experience with disease outbreaks than anyone else in the country. He had done a great deal of important science during his career. He had to know that lockdowns as a mitigation measure had no basis in science. So Joe, did you feel a frisson of danger penning that sentence? I did not. I felt the frisson of confidence. And and here's why. Um, Bethany just spoke about the inequality aspects of lockdowns. But Bethany is very data-oriented, and and she's the one who first got me thinking about, do these things actually work? And that led me to the, uh, if you don't mind, the 2007 fight in the Bush administration over what should a pandemic, what should a pandemic plan look like? Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, the guy who really opposed what they were trying to put together was a epidemiologist named D.A. Henderson. He's the guy who had led the team that ended smallpox in the world. So he kind of knows what he's talking about. Yeah. And his whole line was, this stuff generally doesn't work. Uh, and uh, all you're going to do is panic the society. Now, here we are two, three years later, and one, one of the things we've learned is that um, countries that had lockdowns didn't do any better and often did worse than Sweden or other countries like South Korea that didn't have any lockdowns, and that their value was always a short-term value. It, it can help ease overcrowding, overwhelmed hospitals for a short period of time, but it can't end a pandemic. So what happened was it went from being this measure when they first announced it. Oh, you know, we're going to do this to flatten the curve. We're going to do this to help the hospitals. And then over time, they sort of forgot that rationale. And they just kept things the way they were. And this is especially true with closing schools. 
And the, the, the closing of schools was, was, was a tragedy, not only because of the damage it did to so many disadvantaged kids, but because the science clearly showed that children had the least risk when it came to COVID and that schools, by and large, were the safest place you could be. Mm -hmm. So in closing schools, they were not only doing, doing damage to the kids, they were ignoring the science they claimed they were following. I think that, uh, this is off the top of my head, but when New York City opened schools after lots of sturm and drung, the infection rate went from something like a little less than 0.3 to around 0.6. So you could say it doubled, but from almost nothing to almost nothing. Yeah, no, that's, that's basically right. It was, uh, what happened was in the city itself, the infection rate went from 3 to 6% temporarily. But in the schools, yeah, at the same time, it went from 0.3 to 0.6. And the, 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 for teachers, it wasn't that much higher. Yeah. Now, I want to uh, get to other parts of the book, and we're going to come back to lockdowns. The book is not about the inadvisability of lockdowns or how we got there. It's not 80% of the book. It's maybe 20%. But there are so many chapters on how... PPE was totally screwed up. And there are so many chapters going right to the question of inequalities about how our hospital systems just basically killed people because they didn't have money. Bethany, you want to tell me about one of those aspects? Yeah. So I think one of the things that struck us also in watching the early stages of the pandemic was the terrible stories about overcrowding in hospitals. But it was a few hospitals, and it was always hospitals that served an underprivileged community. And you didn't hear these stories coming out of coming out of wealthier hospitals. And it's made us start to think about this two-tiered hospital system that we have in, in, in the U.S. And then it made me think more broadly about the capital, capitalist mores being applied to the healthcare system. And and part of what I what I mean by that is that we, we've we've set up this very marketized society where the ability to make money or not make money dictates good and bad in so many parts of, of life. And so there's been this argument, well, unprofitable hospitals need to be closed down. And yet hospitals are often unprofitable because of government reimbursement systems, which dictate who makes money and who doesn't make money. So the idea that this is a free market somehow deciding that a hospital providing better services, more necessary services at a lower price is the one that's succeeding. It's, it's just not the case. It's such a completely screwed up system. And so we basically have set up this system where people without access to health care are guaranteed lack of access to health care. And that came home to roost in the pandemic. Even if you believed, as maybe some people do, that you should get the health care you can pay for, all of a sudden, you see in the pandemic the truth of what Lyndon Johnson said when he signed Medicare and Medicaid into existence, which is that basically our country depends on the health of our people. And if our people aren't healthy, everything we can do or hope to do is finished. And when a pandemic hits, you see that, oh, we are all in this together. We are all in this together. And I, I think that was that was the core thinking behind, behind the, the, the hospital sections of the book. Right. And there's also... Um about the privatization of um, nursing homes, which just killed people. 
Uh, one hospital, you talk about a couple specific hospital groups. You talk about a couple specific hospital administrators. A woman named Helen in Chicago probably saved hundreds of lives because she found people's beds. But was it MLK Hospital in Los Angeles? Yep. And so what, what would be the situation there? What would be during the height of the pandemic? What were the administrators there tasked with and what were they trying to do? And how does this uh, exemplify and illustrate what you've been talking about? So hospitals like MLK in Chicago were just completely overwhelmed um, with with patients and didn't have the resources, did did the best job they could under the circumstances, but didn't have the resources and would find when they tried to transfer patients to wealthier hospitals that they simply couldn't transfer them. They'd be told there were there were no beds, there was no capacity to take them, even though they'd know that there were empty beds at, at, at these hospitals. So I think it is still, uh, even with our book, I think it is still an underexplored or unanswered question in the pandemic is why weren't patients from overwhelmed hospitals transferred into hospitals that did have resources and beds available? And I think it comes down to a question of of insurance. Wealthier hospitals, for the most part, didn't want patients who were uninsured or on Medicaid because they were going to lose money. And so they found there are ways you can avoid taking transfers. You say, we don't have the capacity. We don't have a bed. Even if you do, you can say, we think we're going to need our bed. Right. You define it, you say we have to give ourselves the leeway, we have to give, we can't overwhelm ourselves, and you literally have these empty beds, and these other poorer hospitals have these dying patients. Right. So we cover in the book um, Rush Hospital in Chicago, which has long had a commitment, or long, over the last five or 10 years, has really started a commitment to the underprivileged neighborhoods in Chicago for 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 racial and economic justice. And so when the pandemic hit, they actually lived by what they had been preaching and took transfer patients and thought at one moment that they might lose a quarter of a billion dollars because they were taking every patient they, they, they could. And I don't think I don't think that many hospitals did that. <laughs> no. And if you're a publicly traded company, you'd be maybe in violation of some conception of uh, servicing your shareholders. Right. And that's where, you know, it, it is healthcare is where this idea that profits should dictate everything really does become problematic because there are lots of times where other values should be at play in healthcare. And I think where we as a society want other values to be at play, yet we've set up a system where they almost know other values can be at play. And to compound the outrage and tragedy, afterwards, hospital, the top 10% of hospitals share, based on share of private insurance revenue, this is the relief money they got, received 44000 in coronavirus relief per hospital bed, $20,000 per hospital bed for those in the bottom 10%. Those in the bottom 10% were treating more patients, patients were dying more, were more desperate, and then when it came time to relieve them, they got half the relief that the hospitals that wouldn't even take their patients got. Yeah. And I think that's in the way the way in which hospital relief was done, and it was done in a hurry, and then they tried to make it better later on. But it was done based on revenues. And so the very problems that were ingrained in the hospital system were exacerbated by the way that relief was done. Now, the way that hospitals interact with lockdowns is, as you say, that was the early justification. We have to flatten the curve so our hospitals won't be overwhelmed. And now looking back, you could say, look, okay, that was the justification and maybe the justification 
justification expanded over time, but that was a decent enough justification, and perhaps there was something to that. So I want to ask you a couple questions. One is, how much should the public communicators about why we're doing this, why we're committing to lockdowns, how much should they be blamed based on how they explained themselves and what they knew at the time? What do you think, Joe? Well, I think one of the big problems with the, with the whole way the pandemic was dealt with by, by the government and public health officials was they didn't, it's not so much that they didn't tell the truth, but they just weren't straight. And, and they didn't, they were never willing to say, we don't know. Mm-hmm. It would have been so helpful if they had said, we're doing the best we can here. We think this will work, but we don't really know. We don't know if cloth masks work. We don't know if masks work, but they, we think they might be useful. You know, we know that lockdowns will help you the first five weeks to, to, to ease the hospital system. But what they do beyond that, we don't know. Yeah. But they were never willing to say that. No, you say as far as lockdowns, Fauci, Brook, no dissent. You quote the influential uh, British researcher neil ferguson who say if you look at the data the fact that we shut down when we did and the rest of the world did saved hundreds of millions of infections and millions of lives you quote fauci saying one of the problems we face in the united states is that unfortunately there is a combination of an anti-science bias that people are they just don't believe science and they don't believe authority so it's this supercilious framing of uncertainty as not only are we certain but you're a bad person for not trusting our uncertainty that turns out to be caustic i think and 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 that hurt them a lot when the vaccines came along because they had lost so much trust that the vaccines which bethy and i firmly believe worked and did way more good than 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 harm um there was a, a, a an enormous strata of of americans who no longer believe the federal government and therefore if the federal government said vaccines work they were going to say well i'm 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 super deeply suspicious i would like to say one more thing about lockdowns by the way mm-hmm. um which is that the key point and the reason I, I i asked the question we asked the question about why was fauci so adamant about them is because there had never been uh any science that showed their efficacy. So in other words, at the, the reason they were, they were adopted was because right. China did it. Right. And then Italy did it, and then everybody did it, almost in an unthinking fashion, without really thinking through, does this work, does this not work? And, and with, with no, I mean, that's the thing that blew me away. They say, follow the science, but there was no science. I think leaders across the board and more broadly than, than our book haven't quite realized or come to grips with a world that's awash in information. And so if you tell people one thing or pretend certainty when you don't have it, people can find information that's that challenges that certainty or that says, I don't think what you're telling us is true. And so the idea that you can tell people something that may not be true and not risk a loss of credibility in a world well awash in information, it just, it, it, it doesn't work. And then a second point on that that I, I think think we should be clear about. I don't I don't actually fault epidemiologists. I'm not even sure I fault Fauci for educa- advocating strongly for a point of view. I fault the lack of leadership in our society that then defaults to people who aren't supposed to be the leaders, where leaders hide behind people. And so I view this as a, a, any any leader who who hid behind an epidemiologist is is not, is not a leader because it's the epidemiologist or the scientist's job to say this we have to 
do this. This is going to kill people otherwise. And it's the leader's job to say, yeah, but there are all these other factors at work, too, that might kill people. And I need to make a decision here um, about how to move forward in a difficult world. And I think this extends broadly to our arguments about the Federal Reserve. And in, 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 some, in some ways, too, there's a parallel between the Fed and Fauci, oddly enough. People put in positions that they weren't supposed to bear the sole responsibility for this. I appreciate everything you both bring to this book. I don't use the word recommend on the gist. Listeners do what they want. But uh, you get a sense of what's put out there in the book. It was eye-opening to me. The Big Fail, What the Pandemic Revealed About Who America Protects and Who It Leaves Behind. Authors Jonas Sarah and Bethany McLean. Thank you so much. Mike, thank you. Thank you. That was really wonderful. You are really good at this. And over on Pesca Plus, we will continue our lengthy interview. If you pay for Pesca Plus, you get 30 minutes more of this. I was so taken by the book. That is why. We discuss the governors who got it right during COVID. We discuss herd immunity. You could subscribe and listen to all that and get the gist without ads on subscribe.mikepesca.com. It's also your only way to join us for Trivia Night on October 30th. Subscribe.mikepesca.com and an extended interview with Joe and Bethany. And now the spiel. If the entire world isn't concerned with the plight of the regular Gazan citizen, well, they should be. We saw the Al-Hali hospital in Gaza City destroyed today with reportedly hundreds dead. A ground war, an insurgent counteroffensive, will claim the lives of far too many innocents to contemplate. But let us ask ourselves, who is endangering the Gazan citizen? Well, first off, It's the Israeli Defense Forces. Of course, it's the Israeli Defense Forces. They have loosened the rules of engagement. They no longer will be warning buildings when the bombs are about to drop. They'll not be issuing verbal orders before they fire at every suspected Hamas combatant. I don't want to get into the back and forth of root causes and who bears responsibility and if past Israeli actions or attempts to limit civilian casualties have been good, bad, indifferent, or maybe something like the best that could be hoped for. Don't want to get into that. I just want to acknowledge upfront the very obvious point that if the Israel army rolls into Gaza, they have agency, they have choices, and whether or not what they do is necessary or justified, it is those choices that will endanger and kill many innocent Gazan civilians. It would be insulting to you if I were to say otherwise. But of course, also, Hamas has responsibility. And that responsibility is often expressed as Hamas issued a provocation, and this was, in fact, the intended response. I agree with that. That's true. It is true that Hamas intermixes with civilians as a specific tactic, and that Hamas knows that it can use the sight of civilian casualties to garner world sympathy. But I want to go beyond that right now. Yesterday on the show, Matt Levitt made a reference to some of the statements Hamas officials were making, officials who perpetrated the horrific attacks on Israeli citizens and civilians. We both, Levitt and I, both agreed that Hamas lied about their lack of culpability. But it is instructive to analyze the direction of those lies. This is from The New Yorker referring to Hamas senior political leader Musa Abu Marzouk. Quote, he further claimed, this time against all evidence, that Hamas fighters hadn't executed civilians or committed atrocities. Such violence may have been done, he suggested, by Palestinian militants and civilians who had followed Hamas fighters through openings in the security wall. 
Days earlier, the Hamas deputy chief Salal al-Arori spoke to Al Jazeera, and he too blamed the atrocities against Israeli civilians, not on Hamas, but on the regular people of Gaza. When the Gaza division collapsed so quickly and unexpectedly, and people in Gaza, he's saying, realized that the borders were open and that the army guarding the Gaza envelope collapsed, civilians from Gaza, young men and armed men, entered Israel, and some unplanned chaos developed in the clashes. And Al-Arori went on to say, The truth is that our Mujahideen did not target civilians. It is inconceivable that they would perpetrate the kinds of crimes. The civilians found themselves in the middle of the clashes in an open area where many armed men from Gaza arrived, so there were many civilian casualties. He didn't just deflect blame away from Hamas, he shifted the blame onto the civilians of Gaza. They were saying among the non-Hamas citizenry and only the non-Hamas Gazans, you will find the perpetrators of the greatest crimes that Israel was made to suffer, crimes with no military purpose. By the way, some Gazans, regular Gazans, did in fact stream out through the security gates, but Hamas is responsible for the horrors, make no mistake, which is exactly what Hamas wants for us in the West to make mistakes. Hamas wants Israel to mistake schools, mosques, and civilian centers for targets because Hamas purposefully turns them into targets. They use as a tactic the death of the innocent. It's incumbent upon Israel to do what they can to avoid these deaths. But ask yourself who is best served by the inevitable images of suffering children and citizens. That is a tool of Hamas. Who put those people in their crosshairs? Well, the crosshairs or the bomb sightings or the tank turret sites, they all literally have IDF stamped on them. They do. But who keeps the people in those Israeli military sites? It is Hamas. What can Israel do? Good question. Well, largely, they can do much of what they're doing. They did cut off electricity, water, and food. If you listened to me last week, you heard me ask former U.S. diplomat Stephen Simon about water. I didn't understand the tactic of cutting off water. Israel has now restored water. And Israel, the U.S. and international organizations are working with the Egyptians to get shipments of food and medicine in through the southern border. I predict that no Gazans will starve as a result of this Israeli incursion. I could be wrong, and if I'm wrong, it will be a horror that Israel should never have undertaken. But speaking of the southern border, hundreds of thousands of Gazan citizens have fled there at the urging of Israel. Egypt is not letting them out, and the Biden administration and the UN very much hope to facilitate this humanitarian corridor. Now, on the program Democracy Now!, Sven Kuhn von Bergsdorf, who is a recently retired European Union ambassador to Palestine, was asked about the order for the Gazans to move south. The implication of the question was that that alone was an injustice. The answer that von Bergsdorf gave was framed in terms of a possible war crime. The announcement of the IDF to basically forcibly evict more than one million Gazans from their homes in the northern part of the ship 
is likely to be criticized by international legal experts as a war crime. If there is no provision made for ensuring humanitarian access and exit and the necessary facilities to accommodate the basic human rights to water, energy, food, and physical safety, let alone health. And this is also clearly signed in all international conventions Israel has ratified and is accountable to. But listen to what he's saying. If Israel doesn't give aid, food, water, and facilitate a means of exit, they will violate their own treaties. They will violate international law. But right now, work is underway for all those conditions to be met. It is quite horrible that Gazans have to move, but move they must for Israel to execute its campaign against Hamas. And the warnings and public statements issued by Israel and Israel's largest ally, the United States, that's a sign that it's an earnest effort. Assad, Putin, Hezbollah, Hamas, they don't even try to avoid civilian suffering for them it's a tactic. And yeah, they're the world's worst monsters. They are committing war crimes. Israel should do everything it can to prevent the same. Asking, mm, forcing the Gazans to move, and providing them the means to survive is an example of that. And I am not naive, and I am not heartless. Israel will no doubt launch rockets and fire guns that kill many Gazan civilians, and that will all be tragic. And some, just statistically speaking, some will no doubt be avoidable. And I am not supremely confident that there will be an inquest to analyze every one of those deaths. But who benefits more from the deaths of innocents in Gaza? The Israelis or the self-avowed cult of martyrdom that is Hamas? Hamas charges Israel with genocide. This is from a Sky News report on the destruction of that hospital. The horrific massacre carried out by the Zionist occupation in the Gaza city's Al-Ali hospital, which left hundreds of casualties, most of them displaced families, patients, children and women is a crime of genocide that once again reveals the ugly face of this criminal enemy. Genocide. That Israel has a goal of genocide. Israel was founded to escape genocide. And yes, it's true that neglect or indifference or harsh security measures can cause great suffering, which amounts, if you stretch definitions, to the mass deaths of one specific ethnicity. But genocide is not what Israel actually wants. It is literally what Hamas wants. It's all over their charter and repeatedly made in public statements. But put aside the no you're the real genocide or no you are argument, my point is that Hamas actually wouldn't mind the slaughter, not just of Jews, which we know, but of Palestinians. The Palestinians who they deny the vote to. The Palestinians who they persecute and execute as collaborators. The Palestinians who they use as rhetorical and literal shields. And the Palestinians who they deem expendable to their political goal, which is the destruction of Israel and the death of every Jewish Israeli. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is chief Ivy abatement officer of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.